Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. Today, we get to hear from Kathy Hogarth. Kathy is professor, chairwoman, advocate for immigrants and marginalized people groups, as well as a wife and mom. She desires to help others understand the place that racism has in our society and cares deeply about justice. Before we begin, I just want to remind you that we may not always share the same viewpoints or opinions as our guests, but our desire is for people to feel safe to join us at the table and on this journey of life together. This is a very controversial and derisive topic for many, and I was nervous wading into these waters, but felt deeply it was an issue that needed to be amplified. I may not get everything perfectly right in terms of language and political accuracy, but I'm on a journey of learning and listening, active listening if you will. That being said, I may not come to the same conclusions on everything Kathy has, and you might not either, but at least we can come together and bridge the divide with grace. My desire is to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself and stir up good conversation. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So please listen in as we talk about church and racism. Well, welcome everybody to the podcast today. For those of you who don't know our guest, her name is Kathy Hogarth, and she immigrated to Canada in 2002. She's an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Renison University College at the University of Waterloo. She's active in the community on several boards, and she's a wife and mother of two. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Yeah, so today's topic is a big one, and it's something that's been coming up a lot lately, especially with the uprise of the Black Lives Matter movement and all of that. And we're going to be talking about church and racism. So as we begin, I would really appreciate it if you could go into your professor teaching mode a little bit and briefly define some terms for us so that we can have a better understanding of some concepts that uh, have been going around that maybe haven't been a part of our vocabulary up until recently, starting with a bit the big one, systemic racism. Can you briefly explain that if that is a possibility? <laughs> so you're right. Systemic racism is um, it's a big one, and if we we pass those two, if we pass those terms, system and racism. How is racism embedded in the systems that uphold our society? And so we, can, we, we term it systemic racism because we know that many of the systems are, that, that society is based on are racist. Mm, yep. So that is systemic racism. It is this understanding that the systems on which society is based on are fundamentally racist. Right. And so then that would lead me to my next term that I would like to find, and that is white supremacy or white privilege. So white supremacy and white privilege are two very different things. Mm -hmm. White, to be a... To have white privilege does not mean you are a white supremacist. Yeah. White supremacy is based on the notion that 
whiteness is better than any other race. So whiteness is supreme and all other races are therefore less than. It is white supremacy is based in this notion of domination and power. And it is very different from white privilege. Mm, yeah. Not all white people are white supremacists. Right. But all white people have white privilege. Mm-hmm. Now, what is white privilege? White privilege is simply an understanding that I was born white. This is who I am. And because I was born this way, it gives me certain privileges that I walk through my world with. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. It's not saying it is good or bad. It is simply stating a fact I am born white and that whiteness, that fact of my birth gives me certain privileges with which I can walk through the world. Right. Yeah. And thank you for defining the differences between those because sometimes I think they can kind of get a little bit muddied together and people are like, wait, what? (laughs) I don't feel like I'm a really bad person, but yes. And I think the term in itself, so when we, when we um, confuse white privilege with white supremacy, that's hugely problematic mm-hmm. because I know many white people who are not supremacists. Right. But also the way white privilege is often used, it gets people's backs up because they immediately go to privilege as something that like riches so Mm -hmm. wealth all these things and you can have white privilege and be economically underprivileged yes so white privilege is not the same as economic privilege or educational privilege it is not the same. It is simply that because of the color of my skin, I get to walk through my world in a different way. And it doesn't mean I have wealth, although it is, it is highly associated with wealth. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I am more educated, I have educational privilege, Although we know that because you have white privilege, you are likely to walk into educational privilege differently. You are more likely to have other privileges because you have white privilege. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Because I know a lot of people have brought that up when I've had conversation with them is not understanding the difference between white privilege and the other privileges that may they may have or may not have because of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so then could you explain a little bit what allyship might be? So I talk about allyship in terms of one who has privilege and uses it 
alongside, so I talk about it in terms of where privilege and oppression meet on a journey for change. Okay. So that I have privilege and I'm able to use my privilege, whatever that privilege is, I'm able to use my privilege to change the life outcomes of those who don't have the privilege that I have. Yeah. So that I am walking alongside, not in front of, not behind, unless it requires me to walk in front of. To protect. To protect. Yeah. Right? But I'm walking alongside the other who does not have the same privilege I have. Mm -hmm. I'm curious also about this because I've been seeing some things saying that Black people folks especially don't need our allyship and I'd like to hear what you think about that too because I guess like a lot of things it can be taken the wrong way and can be used as more of the upping of our own status as white people but yeah so the 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 notion of allyship is problematic Mm -hmm. because for many of us when we we take on allyship i i say it's like putting on a pair of pants okay i get to take it off when it's convenient so there's this convenience in allyship got it yeah that i get to use it when it suits me and that's the problematic nature of allyship and why for many who are in positions of oppression who are facing the brunt of discrimination, they say there is no true allyship Mm -hmm. because you get to use it when it's convenient to you and you get to take it off when it's inconvenient to you. You get to stand up and protect me as a black woman when it's convenient to you. Right. I don't have, as a black woman, those same privileges of taking it off. I am what I am. Right? So Mm -hmm. there are these limitations to allyship. And allyship becomes problematic when we use it as this, as, as dressing, as a facade, as makeup, if you would. Something you can put on and take off. Yeah. That's the problematic of allyship. Mm -hmm. And that's what leads many to question, do we really need that? Yeah. I really need the convenient ally. And when it becomes inconvenient, you run away. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's often how allyship gets played out. And what we've seen lately in all of this movement of um, Black Lives Matter, what we've seen is a lot of white folk coming out and in support of, of the movement, in support of change. Yeah. Then we also see a lot of the same white folk. They've now reached the point of, have we done yet? Yeah, right. 
right? Mm -hmm. So that you can become exhausted and bow out. Yeah. That's the limits of allyship. Because for those of us who live in bodies of difference, we don't get, we don't, we don't get to bow out. Mm -hmm. That's not an option for us. So understand that allyship, as great a term as it is, as nice a concept as it is, it's also a feel-good concept. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just feel-good. And when it doesn't feel good anymore, we stop. Hmm. Yeah, so and that's... those who live on the opposite end of that, of course there's the question of do I really need that? Mm -hmm. Do I need to massage your ego so that you can feel good? Yeah, exactly. And then when it no longer feels good to you, you walk away. Well, that's sick. No kidding. Oh my goodness. Well, and that's, that's part of the reason why as the active listening podcast, I have wanted to take the time to figure out what some of these things mean, to figure out what some of these things mean to me as a white female and to figure out what is my place here and what is required of me. And is allyship something that I need to be doing or is it something that I can continue doing? And how am I going to continue to be there for you and to lift these voices and have these conversations and not just have it be a one-time thing that has been oh that's been a big conversation within myself and I'm very excited to talk more with you about this so here's what I say about allyship and these terms mm -hmm. let's forget the terms yeah and let's just talk about being a good human yeah Right? Yeah. Because when we talk, when we look at what's needed in this world, it's about humanity, right? Our collective humanity. So that when you stand up for against injustice, you're not standing up for me as the black woman. You're standing up for our collective humanity. Mm. Yeah. You don't need accolades for that. You don't need a title for that. It's called being a good human. Yeah. And so let's get to the job of actually being human. <laughs> yep. And forget the accolades that go along with the titles of things like allyship. Yep. Let's see our responsibility of being human as more important. And so when you stand up in the face of injustice, when you fight for the needs, the rights of another, you are fighting for your own because this is about your humanity in as much as it is about my humanity 
Because what does racism actually tell us? Racism questions two things. Yeah. Questions the humanity of the one who is oppressed and it questions the humanity of the one who is oppressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Wow. And I guess that's what love is, right? Is to, to be human and to see the humanity of others and to care and to act out of that love for others. The best way we can think of love and I, love is a term I love and I hate. Yeah. Because I think within our Christian world. Yes we can misuse this term called love and perpetrate the worst kind of hate. Oh man. Yeah. In the name of love. Right. And I say love of God is best expressed in our service to humanity. Mm. That's how Christ, that's how God expressed his love. Yeah. In his service to humanity. When we think about love, love is not this nefarious, this nebulous, this airy-fairy thing, this feeling in my heart. Love is an expression through our actions, through our every day. Mm -hmm. How can I say I love the other person yet witness violence against them and do nothing what kind of love allows me to witness violence because racism is violence yeah so what kind of love allows me to witness violence and walk away and remain silent and do nothing and be apathetic and be indifferent. Mm-hmm. That's not love. But we also have a very skewed understanding of love at times. The love that's often informed by, by our Christianity. Yeah. So we have to challenge ourselves on that. It requires us to critically reflect on ourselves um, as to what, what am I really doing? How can I say I love my brother? How can I say I love my sister? And, uh, and stand and witness this. Mm-hmm. Because what we are doing every day is witnessing. Yeah. We are witnessing violence. We may choose to close our eyes. Hmm. Yep. Oh, and that is something that I have been purposely choosing to do is open my eyes to this, to witness it and to have it evoke an emotion within me so that I can then look at love as not something that is about me and my individuality Mm -hmm. because that's according to the love that i see in the bible that isn't what it's about (laughs) it certainly isn't about that yeah 
<sighs> Thank you for clarifying that a little bit and to help me understand and to help the listeners understand that a little bit more. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I would like to switch a little bit and go into a little bit of your story and to hear a little bit of your background and experience growing up and growing up. Did you have an experience of church and what was that like and how did that affect your understanding of the world? I grew up as a pastor's kid. Okay. So I grew up in a Christian family. But Christianity for me was um, was community. Christianity for me was born out. Church for me was every day because it was in home. It was in, in, in a building called church. But it was how life was lived more than it was a Sunday morning thing. So that my dad, being both a pastor and a laborer, um, because he worked in a factory, he worked in a factory sometimes by day, sometimes by night. Mm. And then the rest of his time, he was actually living well even while in the factory he was living church yeah and so our home was always a place of community uh uh life was a life of community and so for me church really bore great significance and it really wasn't about I go to church on Sundays, right? Mm -hmm. It really was about, I live church. Yeah. Every day. My dad was an activist, still is. He's in his 80s. (laughs) Wow. And he's still living this life of change. How do we reconcile the world? Yeah. Right? And that that reconciling wasn't didn't necessarily happen in a building called church. It happened wherever we were. Mm-hmm. So that for me is how I grew up. Um, that for me was the the very foundational years of my my Christianity. And that for me is now how I live my life. It seems a bit foreign in some regards to come into a system where church is a building. Yeah. And where it feels so devoid of community. Yeah. So you go to church on a Sunday and the only time those people are involved in your lives is on a Sunday, maybe for the 10 or 15 minutes when you're in the foyer, right? Yeah. Um, that feels very foreign to me, but I've come to know that as Canadian church. Ah, yeah. Which isn't wonderful. <laughs> I have also been on a journey of, because I'm purely Canadian, and I don't love that church is just like that either. <laughs> 
I am really curious, though, and I don't want this to be an assumption of your upbringing, but, um, well, I'm just curious because I'm wondering if, like, your culture of growing up just in being in a different country also affected the way that you saw church as community as opposed to how North Americans view church? Um, I think it may have an impact. And you know what? When I associate with people from different cultures, there is a language around cold cultures and warm cultures and folks in warm cultures do church differently than folks in cold cultures and Canada is a cold culture. Cold yeah. culture. Yeah. Um, but it's also this idea of the individual versus the community. Yeah. So where I grew up, um, and I have traveled immensely. I've traveled a lot around <laughs> the world. Mm-hmm. And in my in my travels and where I grew up, I've lived for over a decade, well, I've lived in three different countries for more than a decade at a time. Wow, okay. Okay? And so what I've been able to experience to experience in, in these various places is significant difference in how we do community. Mm-hmm. In the Caribbean, a lot of our lives is lived in community. So, for instance, I don't need to call my friend to say, hey, I'm coming over. I just show up. Yeah. And I'm welcomed in. I grew up in a family and a lot of people within those cultures will tell you, you never just cook for your family because anybody may show up. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So you always have extra food because anybody may show up. Then you walk into a culture like the one we are currently in, where you have to make sure you call before you come. (laughs) Because if you just show up, I may not answer my door. Right. It's all very proper and polite. Right. And so there is this strong boundary between individuals Mm -hmm. here, whereas those boundaries between individuals and families we understand when i grew up i was raised by my my parents of course they have responsibility but i did not get out of hand in community because my community members will equally discipline me yeah right that's an expectation of community mm-hmm. that they share in the responsibility of, in some ways, uh, of raising good kids, right? Yeah. That's not the same experience I've had here. Here, every man's to himself. Yeah. Um, you do your thing there. We won't get involved kind of thing. Yeah. And the ways that we get involved then would be Oh, I need to call child welfare on you. Oh, yeah. Because you're not raising your kids well. Well, that's not the culture I come from. So I there are stark differences that are cultural. And um 
yes, absolutely, that informs then how we do church. Mm-hmm. So then when you immigrated to Canada, why did you choose to attend a church that is made up mostly of white people? I don't know that there is that there are many other options. Canada yeah. is white. Yeah. <laughs> um I actually did some church shopping, air quotes, church shopping when I came to Canada. Yeah. And I landed where I landed because at the time, a friend of mine from a church in Jamaica, so I lived for 10 years in Jamaica before I moved to Canada. Ah, okay. A friend of mine from a church there said, hey, you should visit this church. She left shortly after. Uh, I think maybe she was there one Sunday while I was there. Oh, yeah. Um, And the idea of church shopping for me is, it's new. It's not not something I'm very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So we stayed and... Uh, what, 15, 17, how many ever years later, we are still there. Yeah. It's not been our ideal. Yeah. Um, we, we said we were staying for our kids because we ended up having kids. Our kids have, are now at the age where they themselves feel very excluded in mm. that space. Yeah. So it's not been our ideal, but we are also people of commitment, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not that you stay in a bad relationship, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because you're committed to it, but we stay and we try to build yes. for the future we want. Mm-hmm recognizing that the present isn't necessarily uh, ideal, but we are building for the future we want. Yes, I'm totally with you on that one. And I feel very similarly as there's been, I mean, I've been at the same church my entire life, 30 years. And in the last 10 years, there have been a lot of questions in soul searching and I have been unsure about a lot of things and I'm I'm there to love on people and like you said to help bring forth change that I'd like to see and I am so grateful that you are still there and that you are taking the time and putting in the effort and doing the hard work of helping to bring about change and to have hard conversations when there haven't been these conversations before. Like you were on a panel a couple of weeks ago and wow, that conversation like blew my mind and it was amazing that we were sitting down to have this conversation about race and humanity. And thank you for doing that. That is, that is wonderful that you are doing that, but it is hard work, I'm sure. It is hard work and the, the reality is uh, systems like our churches mm-hmm. will only change to the degree that they they are open to change. Right. 
I grew up with this, this saying that God is a gentleman. Mm-hmm. If we had to reduce God to manly status. Yeah. But that he won't push into where he's not invited. And okay, I'm not sure I, I buy all of that. But I, I say that to say this. We will only change to the extent that we want to, that we are open to change. Mm-hmm. We will invite people into our spaces only to the extent that we are comfortable. And I've been at this church since 2004, so the last 16 years. Yeah. And um, it's not that we haven't tried. Mm. (laughs) We've been trying for 16 years. Yeah, I can imagine. We've been asking for these conversations for as long as we've been there. Mm -hmm. And that the conversations are now happening. It's great. It's great that they're now happening but it's frustrating that they're now happening. Right. And it's been how many years of it being in existence that it hasn't. Right. Which (laughs) that makes me think of the word tokenism a little bit. And this is a big issue right now. And we'll bring in somebody who is black so that we can talk about this. And how is that actually... I guess kind of the same as allyship, but harmful to the work of anti-racism within our places of worship. And how can we like balance that? So here's what I say about tokenism. I don't mind being your token. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind being your token. If you use me as a doorstop. Uh, Yeah. Right. As an opening to allow others into that space. Hmm. Tokenism is a bad thing. Yeah. So how do I reclaim it? This is my reclaiming of it. If you use me as the token to keep that door open, I'm happy being your little token. Um, What we've seen in our church, and we've seen it in many um, churches around across North America, we've seen a number of racialized folks come in and they leave. They come in and they leave because they've they've recognized the place as unwelcoming to them. Mm-hmm. They've recognized the place as unable to serve their needs. Mm -hmm. We go to church, yes, to build, but we also go to church because we have needs. Yeah. And if the church isn't equipped to meet those needs, and many of our churches are white, predominantly white churches, are neither equipped nor want to be equipped to meet those needs. Mm-hmm. And so we, 
I think one, it is a failure to first acknowledge how Christianity is tied in some of its, the ways it manifests, how it's tied to this notion of whiteness. Mm-hmm. When, for instance, all of the worship songs in a church, the only people we worship, songs we worship with are white bands, white musicians. What is it saying to the folks who are not white and who are from countries, other countries? Are we saying that their worship isn't good enough, can't stand your test, can't, what are we saying? What message are we sending? Mm -hmm. And so even at that very basic level, and for me as an educator, this is something I challenge my, my colleagues about, because yes, I work at an institution that I work in a department that's predominantly white. Yeah. I'm the only black faculty member in my department. And I teach students who are 90 to 95% white. Mm -hmm. Yet what I do know is that those students are going out to serve a world that looks different than they do. Hmm. And it's the same with the church. We are going out to serve a world that looks different than we do. So how do we educate? This is the question I ask of my colleagues. How do we educate our students to serve a world that's different from them if all we are giving them to read is what the white man said? Yeah. If we can't see ourselves reflected in what's up there, then I'm sorry, maybe this church isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Right? We've made Jesus white. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. We've made Jesus white. And that is hugely problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you think that we can kind of break that cycle, so to speak? Because in my experience, like I've been on the worship team at the church and I'm one of the people that is on the stage as the face of what the church is as a white person. And how do we have more diversity without it being a, well, we have you here so that people of color or people of different cultures see you and then want to come so we can sing your music? And how does it not just become like a business transaction? I say, let's go for love in action. Yep. (laughs) Right? It comes back to love. Yes. Let's learn to love like Christ love. Let's look at Christ as our example. Not the white Christ. Yes. (laughs) 
let's ask ourselves some hard questions about the Christ of the Bible. You know, one of the things I, I constantly go back to is he ate with sinners. <laughs> he had yeah. friends who were sinners. He got into the trenches mm -hmm. with folks. He got into the trenches, right? One of his disciples was Judas. Yeah. One of his disciples, one of the men closest to him was Judas. What does that tell us about Christ? It, one of the things it certainly tells us about him is that he wasn't afraid of difference. He wasn't afraid of the people who were different from him. Mm -hmm. What I find often and why racism is so prevalent and insidious and what drives racism, what drives racism in our society, what drives racism in our churches, it's fear. We are afraid of the things that look different. Mm -hmm. We are afraid of the Muslim other. We are afraid of the black other. We have bought lies. As a church, we bought into these lies because as a church, we are not living in some bubble outside of society we are part of a culture and our culture has sold us these lies yeah so one of the things i say often is we need to change our proximity to the thing we fear most yeah we need to change when we look at our churches just do a scan and ask yourselves as you look at in the foyer on a Sunday morning in between services, who's with whom? Mm -hmm. What do we see? We see our white groups over there. We see our black groups over there. And we see our Latino groups over there. Yeah. That's what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. It's true. How do we break those cycles? How do we welcome people, truly welcome them into our spaces? Yeah. We have the narrative that runs at our church about things like, well, if you want friends, you have to be friendly. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't buy that. While it sounds true, there is a whole lot that goes on beyond friendliness. Oh, yes. So I think we have to ask ourselves, how would Christ love? Because honestly, I don't think I get it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've been doing life for eight, for 16 years at my church and I don't think I get it. Yeah, I agree. So what would loving someone in practical terms look like for you? First, in order to love someone, you have to get to know them. You Again, you have to change your proximity to them. You can't yeah. love from a distance. Right. Because then it's just empty words. Exactly. Yeah. I know in my journey of learning through this and through so many things that are happening right now with COVID and, and the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm learning how love looks to people who are not like me. And it's really uncomfortable sometimes. And I'm having to learn to sit with discomfort because I don't like to be uncomfortable. It's something that is a part of my personality and I struggle with it hugely. And I'm making myself be uncomfortable on purpose because I want to know more of what it means to love and to have empathy for other people. So that's the second step. Yeah. First is change your proximity. Second is sit with discomfort. Yeah. We, uh, this is going to rub us wrong. Mm. Because maybe our families of origin told us stories about those people over there maybe Mm -hmm. it's the media that has cemented these stories in our minds about those people over there maybe it's some of the teachings we've had in our in our schooling that has cemented these ideas about these people over there maybe it is something we can't touch within ourselves we can't identify within ourselves All we know is that it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And sometimes we need to sit with that discomfort. So change our proximity, sit with the discomfort. And what we realize after time of changing proximity, sitting with our discomfort, the thing that was first uncomfortable becomes comfortable. Hmm. Here's the other thing. So we've sat with our discomfort. We have changed our proximity. Now let's do the messiness. Mm -hmm. Relationship is messy. Yeah. And you're not going to, what we often do, particularly as it relates to race, we feel that we can't make mistakes. What if I say the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. What if, this is relationship, this is life, and we are not always going to get it right. Yeah. So now we've sat with discomfort. We are living with that discomfort. Let's get messy Mm -hmm. and do relationship together. Yeah. And get a little bit angry sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's something that I'm starting to understand too, is being brought up in 
a Christian family and in the church, anger wasn't really an option. And to have righteous indignance about something was more okay. But I'm learning now that, yeah, I'm going to get angry about something and I'm going to talk to my family about it. And it may not have the result that I absolutely am expecting, but because we're in relationship and I love you, we will talk about this. That's right. And <sighs> for me, I, I, I talk about it in, term, in this way. It's like you're coming to the table for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I'm too angry to get there. The rest of my family can have dinner, but leave the empty seat so that when I get there, I get there. Mm-hmm. That the space, the seat is always there at the table. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I think we. we Um, when was it Sunday I was speaking at another church on this very topic and one of the questions was really about so how do I how do I bring myself or why am I not angry Hmm. yeah why am I not angry or why am I only now angry? Mm-hmm. So that when we begin to understand, when we begin to understand racism in our society, racism didn't start with George Floyd, okay? Yeah, right. George Floyd was a public murder at the hands of white policemen. Mm-hmm. A public murder witnessed around the world but we've had 400 years of 450 years of slavery Mm -hmm. we've had 200 years of anti-indigenous or indigenous elimination we've had decades of segregation legal segregation in Canada Mm -hmm. did any of those things make us angry if not why not why are we now angry and if we are not angry why are we not angry anger is an absolute valid response and so I say in the midst of this if I'm not angry if you're not angry ask yourself how is it I can see this and not let it move me mm-hmm. what work does God need to do with me so that I can be touched by the brutality that others must endure. What does he need to do with my heart so that I can become, my heart can be softened to 
the love of God expressed in the love of others. Mm-hmm. Because to watch brutality in the face and not be touched, to me, suggests a kind of callousness of heart that needs to be worked on. Mm-hmm. And to love others doesn't necessarily mean that every single person is going to be an activist for justice, right? No, I disagree. <laughs> we all need to be activists for justice. But what it means is we won't all be activists in the same way. Ah, that's a good clarification, yeah. Because we're all different people. That's right. Justice is not an option. Yeah. That's the responsibility. That's a requirement. Right? It's yeah. not optional. Mm-hmm. How we, we do justice, how we are activists for justice, that differs. Right. And it would be, I feel like it would be a discovery of who you are and what moves you and how it moves you and to to action in a sustainable way that right. you can keep doing so that it doesn't become a ego boost or something like that. And so I may be the person who's out there. I've, I've got the gift of gab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have the gift of gab quite as much. So I learn other ways. Exactly. So what is your way? And this is where I say... Earlier, you asked the question about a lot of Black people are saying we don't need white allies. Yeah. So what can I do as a white person? Yeah. This is where I say, what can I do as a person? Right. We all have a role to play. And your role is not mine. Mm-hmm. We are all positioned differently. And so I say, start with where you're positioned. What do you have in your hand? Use the tools you have. You might be an artist. I am not. Yeah. So how can I use my art to create change? Mm-hmm. You might be a singer. How can I use my songs to create change? Yeah. You might be a professor, a teacher. How can I use my teaching to create change? We start with where we are at and what's in our hands. And oftentimes the the problem for many is we think change must only look like one thing. And we can't see ourselves in that. Mm -hmm. I challenge everyone, see yourself in it. And I I, I say, if you think you're too small, too insignificant to make change, try spending a night in a room with a mosquito. (laughs) That's a good one. Yes. 
we all have a responsibility to change the world we live in. Yeah. We don't get a free pass on that. But your way of changing may look very different from mine. Mm-hmm. And we need your different way to work with my different way to create the change we want to see. Yeah. So as we bring this to a close, I just have one final question. And you've kind of answered it throughout this already, but how can we, as a faith community, come alongside and support our Black and Indigenous brothers and sisters and help to lift you up and amplify your voices and use our privilege for good? I think first as a church, we have to acknowledge that we too, as a church, we are complicit. We have played a part and we continue to play a part in the ills of society. We have to acknowledge, we have to reckon with that. Mm -hmm. Our silence as a church is violence. Mm. Yeah. We cannot, we cannot take the position that we don't get political. Race, racism is political. One of the things we need to understand is that my black body, the indigenous body, the gay body, the Asian body, they are all made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. They are image bearers. And if they are image bearers, attacks, and let's understand racism as as violence. If my body is an image bearer of the most high God, then racist violence against my body is violence against God, the Mm. very image of God. Wow. Yeah. We cannot delink it. And once we begin to understand that as a church, maybe then we will lift our voices and cry out. Mm-hmm. Where is the collective crying out of the church for this nation? Mm-hmm. The church is one of the largest institutions in society. One of the largest institutions in society. Yeah. There are probably more churches in every community than there are schools. Yeah, it's crazy. How do we use what we have, the tools we have, our position in our sphere of influence to change 
our society. Mm-hmm. The church has a role and the church has remained largely silent. There is no collective outcry. Yeah. I guess now it's time for us to raise our voices a little bit. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> Just a little. Or maybe we could post a podcast to the internet. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kathy. You're welcome. I'm so glad that you took the time to sit with me and have this conversation on church and race and to help bring some understanding and some clarity and to have an open and honest conversation with me. Thank you so much. I hope it helped. I was so grateful that Kathy took the time to have a real and honest conversation with me. There are so many things that I am still learning and coming to understand, but this helped me to recognize my place a bit better and also what is required of me. I loved how she said we are all required to be activists for justice, but it will look different for everyone. There are so many resources out there on this topic, and I don't feel qualified to state which ones are the best. However, in the show notes, you can find several links to various articles and accounts that I have found helpful in my journey with racism. Included there is Kathy's Twitter. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, or need further clarification on anything you've heard, please don't hesitate to reach out or contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.